Well, good morning. You are probably aware that since the advent of smartphones, the rates of mental health disorders have been skyrocketing. Studies have shown that this is most pronounced in younger generations today, but uh, according to a 2016 study done by the American College of Health Association, it said that 53% of American college students said that they feel hopeless. And that was before COVID back in 2016. Since COVID, there's been about 25% increase worldwide in anxiety and depression. Those struggling with their mental health seem to be getting younger and younger with each passing year. And if you are perhaps quick to dismiss these rising rates of anxiety in young people, let me just point out the fact that all of us now are experiencing a profound sense of disorientation in our world today. There have been seismic shifts, as you probably are aware, in human civilization in an incredibly short period of time. Today, there's almost universal access to the internet. In just a few decades, the spread of information grew at an unprecedented rate, and it caused everyone's world to become more pluralistic, diverse, and frenetic. Some of us uh, can remember a time when it was the exception rather than the rule that work followed us home, or wait lines uh, when they were places of conversation rather than isolation. And when we got the news just twice a day rather than every second of the day. With access now to infinite, instant information at the tip of our fingers, we have been flooded with too many choices, and as a result for every single one of us, life is now filled with far more uncertainty and worry. What is tragic is that there are those now who can't recall life being any different. And is it any wonder that anxiety is now the norm for them? Well, I bring all this up because the Bible actually has great news for anxious people. And the Psalms in particular are a treasure trove of wisdom when it comes to the emotional life. It's both comforting and, if we're honest, a a little bit startling that the Psalms speak with such candor about our emotions. You will find every single possible emotion in the book of Psalms. Outrage, joy, confusion, anger, relief, and fear. And Tim Keller has pointed out that the Psalms teach us to avoid two equal and opposite errors when it comes to our emotions. On the one hand, the approach often taken by those in religious or conservative cultures is to ignore and suppress our emotions. And on the other hand, in more modern cultures, emotions are seen as the most important thing about you. How you feel is who you are. And therefore, you must express your emotions at all costs. But the Psalms teach us that both of these ways are in fact wrong. The Psalms show us that we are not to stuff or deny our emotions like traditional cultures, nor are we simply to express them like secular cultures as if expressing them was a good in and of itself. We shouldn't be ignorant of our emotions nor overawed by our emotions. We shouldn't be stuffing our emotions or bowing down to them. We shouldn't be denying or venting them. We should be praying our emotions. The Psalms teach us to to pour out our hearts as they actually are to God. 
We are to take our emotions as they come in all their rawness to God and evaluate them on behalf of His Word. The Psalms are a template of how to do that. They're the the songs of the soul and they are divinely inspired prayers that have been set to music. And God's people have been singing and praying these psalms for thousands of years to receive help in their emotional life. And in our psalm this morning, Psalm 46, what we see is uh, we are taught what we are to do with our fear and anxiety. Psalm 46 was famously known as Martin Luther's favorite psalm. It was recorded that in his darkest moments, Luther would say to his friends, come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let our enemies do their worst. His most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was based on this psalm. And in Psalm 46, the psalmist, he doesn't suppress his fear and he doesn't vent his fear. Instead, he, he prays his fear And fear is so foundational to our lives that you probably haven't slowed down to think about what it actually is. Well, fear is basically this. Something that I love dearly is under threat. And now my hold on it is uncertain. Fear, it's a sort of umbrella emotion. There are a ton of little streams that branch off from this main river of fear Psychologist Dan Allender puts it like this. He says, we could list an entire spectrum of feelings under the heading of fear in ascending order of their intensity. Nervousness, worry, anxiety, terror, and horror. And the difference between these is not so much that they are different kinds of emotions, nor does it have to do with the seriousness even of the threat, but rather they differ in the intensity of the feeling. Fear and anxiety and terror and nervousness, they all say basically the same thing. That something we love is uncertain because it is threatened. And each of these emotions, it's it's disorienting. It throws us off balance. And that's exactly how the psalmist describes his fear in verses 2 and 3 in Psalm 46. He says that his fear is as disorienting as the two of the most sturdy things in the whole world. The earth itself and, and its mountains, these icons that were indestructible and unshakable. And his fear is, is as disorienting as the crashing down of these symbols of strength. His fear is so overwhelming that it feels like his whole world is being undone. Do you, do you know this feeling? Have you ever felt your world to be falling apart at the seams? Well, before we continue on to see how the psalmist instructs us to respond in our fear, there's an important piece of wisdom here for anxious people. When the psalmist says, though the earth gives way and though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, it can equally be translated when the earth gives way and when the mountains are moved into the sea. In in Hebrew, the preposition can mean both though and when. And they're both right, but the point I want you to see is that the trouble uh, that we experience in this life is not a matter of if, but when. C.S. Lewis noted just how important expectations are, uh, and, and he gave this illustration. He said, imagine being led into a room, and before you go in, you are told that this room is the honeymoon suite at the Ritz. And, and so you enter into it, and, and you begin to look around, and you think to yourself, man, this place is a dump. 
But on the other hand, if you were told before you walked into that very same room that you were told that that room is in fact a jail cell, well then you would look at that exact same room and think, this is amazing. You'd be in, in awe of it. You see, expectations are everything. And too often we are surprised at the trials of our life. And at least half of the problem when it comes to mental health is that we are depressed over our depression. We are anxious about our anxiety. We're upset over being upset. And half the problem is that the anger and the guilt that we experience that says it's not supposed to be this way. When financial instability or relational strain or even death itself ultimately come knocking at our door, our illusion of control comes crashing down. And we can descend into a paralyzing sense of anxiety. But truth be told, half the battle is just getting our expectations right. And Jesus wanted his disciples to have his ex their expectations right when he said, in this world you will have trouble. So getting our expectations right, it's, it's very important uh, but, but what do we do, actually, when we find ourselves in the inevitable storms of life? Maybe you're here this morning, and you can relate right now to how this psalmist is feeling. What are you to do when you are overwhelmed with this kind of disorienting, uh, debilitating anxiety? Perhaps maybe you know that God is a refuge and a strength for those in trouble, but, but that alone doesn't really seem to help much. Just thinking about God in, in the abstract is, is rarely helpful when we are confronted with real, tangible, overwhelming fears. So how can you actually come to experience God's help in these times? Well, Psalm 46 tells us if you want to experience God's help in your anxiety, you must set your mind on three things. God's presence, God's power, and God's pedigree. His presence, His power, and His pedigree. They must be at least as tangible and as real to you as whatever is assailing you if you want to experience true peace. So first, let's look at God's presence in verses 4 and 5. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The first thing that the psalmist wants us to focus on is the fact that God is in the midst of His people. And when God is present, these raging storms can begin to feel like a placid river. Why, you might ask, is it important to start with God's presence? Well, uh, someone who's, uh, because someone's presence, that when we experience somebody's presence, it's the most physical and tangible thing about them. There was this moment a couple weeks ago in the Little League World Series in the Southwest Regional. Uh, I wonder if you saw it. Uh, Team Oklahoma, who had never been to the Little League World Series, was playing the, this powerhouse team from uh, Pearland, Texas. And in the first ear, uh, inning, Pearland went up 3-0, to zero, but the underdog Oklahoma, they were hanging tight. Uh, they, in the bottom of the first, uh, Oklahoma brought it to 3-2 to two when a scrawny Isaiah Jarvis came to the plate. And pitching on the mound was uh, this, the, the big man of Perlman's team. He was Caden Shelton. He was their star pitcher and hitter. And it was the, this kind of perfect representation of a David versus Goliath matchup. And, and what happened next shocked everybody that was there. Caden lost control of his fastball and it hit Isaiah 
right in the head and he flips over on the ground instantly. And there are gasps all around from the crowd. And after that, the only thing that you could hear was the umpire saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, as he was attending this fallen player. And moments later, Isaiah, in fact, got up and he walked to first base. The pitch had miraculously just hit the thickest part of his helmet and he was all right. Uh, But everyone, of course, was stunned in the ballpark, especially the pitcher. He was so shaken up by all of it that, that, that he began to cry. And who could blame him, you know, right, after seeing what he just saw? Well, the game was supposed to keep going, uh, but he couldn't stop crying. And then the most remarkable thing happened. After just being drilled by this fastball, Isaiah saw that none of Caden's teammates or even his coaches were coming to console him on the mound. And so he left first base and he, he went to the pitcher's mound. And, and when he got there, he leaned in and he gave him a hug. And he said, hey man, it, it's all right, I'm all right, it's okay. I know you didn't mean it. And as you can imagine, everyone is just bawling in the, in the ballpark when this happened. You see, even the pitcher could see that Isaiah was okay as he walked to first base. But it was only when Isaiah came in close and embraced him that he could know and feel in his body what he knew in his head. And that's why the psalmist begins with God's presence. The first thing he wants to know, uh, that God wants us to know, is that he comes in close and he is with us. If God's presence is going to be more real to you than your fears, then you have to begin by sensing his presence. And you, you know just how important this is. Imagine how ridiculous it would be if a father came into his boy's room after hearing screams uh, because his son thought that there was a monster under his bed. And he, and he came in and he started to try and reason with the boy. Maybe he would say, you know, there's, there's really no such thing as monsters, right? And if there were, even, you know, he couldn't fit under your bed. Of course not. We know that the first thing a loving father does is that he comes in close and he puts his arms around his boy and he simply holds him close and says, I'm here, it's okay, I'm with you. Only then can the child begin to feel what he knows in his head. In your anxiety and fear, the first thing you must do is know that God is with you. The next thing you must do is set your mind on God's power. Imagine going to a counselor who only offered empathy and compassion to you. And empathy and compassion, they're important, but if you are really stuck in a pit and you actually need somebody to get down in the pit, yes, and empathize, but you also need somebody who is strong enough to put you on their shoulders and carry you out. And the presence of just anyone won't do when the earth is giving way and the mountains are falling into the sea. It's in times like these that only the presence and, and the, of the one who made the sea will bring you comfort. It is God's mighty power that, that the psalmist begins to think about in verse 6. He says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. The psalm was likely written uh, after one of Israel's military victories, and no doubt wartime is in fact an anxious period in a nation's existence. Here, the psalmist is saying that the deciding factor in the battle, though, was not Israel's strength, but God's. 
So mighty is God that while the other nations are assembling and doing their best, all God must do is simply give the word and everything ceases. The psalmist's mind is, is hearkening back to the opening of the Bible in Genesis. And what you may not realize is that when Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was doing so with a specific backdrop in mind. You see, all the ancient Near Eastern cultures, they had their own creation stories. And and what these creation stories all had in common was that each of them said there were many gods and that creation only just came about after the the warring and the the struggle between these gods. And so uh, when God finally reveals himself in Scripture, several things stood out. The Bible emphasized that First, Yahweh alone is God. And secondly, unlike all these other weak so-called gods, uh, Yahweh simply creates by speaking. That's all he has to do. His word is so powerful it can bring things into existence. And as the book of Hebrews tells us that the same powerful word is right now upholding the chairs that you are sitting on and the, the stones of this church and everything in the entire universe. The Bible teaches us that God is so powerful that He can create and sustain all things and He can save anyone just by speaking the word of His power. Uh, He's also called in the psalm the Lord of hosts. And I'll be honest with you, up until a couple years ago, I thought the word host simply meant someone who welcomed guests at a party. Uh, You can imagine my confusion every time we got to the doxology and you, you heard the line, praise Him all ye heavenly hosts. But when it says the Lord of hosts in Scripture, what it literally means is the Lord of armies. Hosts can mean armies. And while I'm on the subject of publicly confessing my ignorance, I always thought that every time we sing that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and when we got to that line that said, Lord Sabaoth, His name, I always thought it was a typo for Sabbath. I couldn't believe how many times that typo kept repeating itself, no matter the church or the place I was in. But but the word Sabaoth was the Hebrew word for host or armies. And that's what Luther uses in his hymn. So when God is called the Lord of hosts, we we are to think of his his awesome power. He's the the Lord of armies. He's got legions, both of uh, the armies of Israel and the armies of the heavenly angels at his disposal. And what a tremendous comfort that is to know that the Lord of armies, the creator of heaven and earth, is on our side. That he is with us and he is for us. He is a mighty fortress in the battles of life. But the psalmist instructs us to fix our minds finally on one last thing. He says if you want to experience God's help in your anxiety, you need to fix your mind not only on God's presence and on His power, but finally on His pedigree. You see, God is is present with us in our fears, and He is strong enough to actually do something about our dilemma, but it's only His pedigree, His past faithfulness, that gives us the assurance that uh, His presence and His power are for our good. The psalmist calls out to anyone within earshot, come behold the works of the Lord. He recalls how God was faithful in the past to deliver his people. Remembering God's faithfulness has always been an important part in the life of the church. Every time God delivered his people, he would then institute a ritual 
of remembrance so that future generations would come to to cultivate trust and have hope in God for their future. When he delivered them from Egypt, he gave them the Passover meal. When they entered into the promised land, he told Joshua to set up stones of remembrance so that they would know the works of the Lord. Even secular wisdom knows the importance of recollection and gratitude when it comes to finding help in our anxiety. Modern neuroscience has shown that expressing gratitude helps to activate the parasympathetic or the the calming part of our nervous system. Remembering God's past faithfulness is one of the most important parts of dealing with anxiety because there are many times in this life where it appears that God isn't being faithful. We pray and we seek God's Word and we uh, try to be obedient and still the thing that we are uh, loving that's threatened is still threatening it. It's not going away and perhaps the threat's even growing stronger. And we're left wondering, is God really good and all-powerful? And if He is, then why is this still happening? It's especially in these times that we must recall God's past faithfulness because it assures us that even though we can't understand why God has allowed evil and suffering to exist, we can still have hope for the future. And that hope isn't unfounded. If God doesn't remove our tribulations in this life, if He doesn't right all our wrongs now, He has promised that He will do so for His people at the end of the age. And then He will indeed break every spear and shatter every bow. He will destroy the war chariots and the tanks and all the weapons of mass destruction. And He will perfectly establish His peaceful reign for all eternity. Then He will say to His enemies, as He does here, be still or cease and desist. And they will all bow their knee before Him. And He will be perfectly exalted in that last great day. Friends, we must recall God's past faithfulness, not because He always gets rid of our fears, but because He promises to bring us through them safely. Do you, I wonder, long for this kind of peace that the psalmist has? Do you long for the incredible confidence he has even in life's greatest trials? What if I told you that you could actually have an even greater peace and greater confidence than the psalmist does? You see, the psalmist, he he set his mind on God's past faithfulness, but he lived about a thousand years before the climactic display of God's faithfulness. My friends, you and I can have far more hope and assurance in our anxieties than the psalmist does because of the person of Jesus. In Him, we have come to know the true extent of God's presence and power and pedigree. In Jesus Christ, we see the full display of God's presence. That God came so close that He became one of us. He was so present that He knew what it was like to be afraid. Sweating even drops of blood in His fear. He left the glories of heaven and became acquainted with the trials and pains that you and I face. And he came so close that he even tasted death on our behalf. And in Jesus Christ, we see the full display of God's amazing power. Jesus spoke these same words, be still, and the wind and the waves obeyed him. Because they knew that he was God. 
He cast out demons. He he healed the sick. He cleansed the defiled. But chiefly was his power displayed when he rose from the dead and defeated sin, Satan, and the devil. And in Jesus Christ, God's pedigree is shown to be impeccable. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And in Jesus Christ, all the promises of the Old Testament come to pass. He is the ultimate priest who we need to cleanse us from our sin. He's the climactic prophet who's very, he's the very embodiment of God's word. And he's the ultimate faithful king who rules with absolute righteousness. My friends, even in our accelerated and uncertain and frenetic age, there is an unsinkable peace and a sure hope to be had. God has thankfully given us many aids to fight our anxiety and our worries. There is wisdom, yes, in being still, of ceasing from our screens, of resting from our work. And every time we stop, we're putting up a battle flag in the ground of resistance against the world. We declare that we are not what we produce and that we do, in fact, have good creaturely limits that must not be ignored or denied, but lived into. And he has given us his common grace, thankfully, in the medical field to help our bodies to cope with anxiety through through breathing, through diet, through medicine, through exercise. But as good as all of these strategies are, they will never be able to fully get rid of all the threats that keep coming at us in this life. No, the only true antidote is to be still and to know Jesus Christ, His presence, His power, and His pedigree. He is anxiety's antidote. So let us heed Martin Luther's words. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabaoth His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Amen.